two passages from Paul's letters to the church in churches in Rome and in Corinth. First to the Romans, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your perfect worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern the will of God to know what is good and perfect and acceptable. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. And then to the Corinthians, Paul writes, We destroy arguments and overcome every obstacle standing in the way of the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive for Christ. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Stewardship is a word you hear mostly in church and almost nowhere else. But in church you hear it all the time. It's an integral concept for us, which is strange when you think that the word stewardship appears nowhere in the Bible. The word steward appears 12 times, but almost every time referring literally to a steward, an important person's manager or administrative assistant. And only once does it refer in the larger metaphorical sense to our human responsibility to care for the good things God has lent to us for the 80 years in which we occupy space on this earth. At thesaurus.com, synonyms for steward include custodian, waiter, and flight attendant. I hope that doesn't diminish the concept for you. Adam Copeland teaches theology at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, and he put this in perspective for me by referring to Downton Abbey. We are not Lord Robert Crowley, the seventh Earl of Grantham nor Lady Cora Crowley, or even Dowager Countess Maggie Smith. We are Mr. Carson, the butler who manages the estate, or Elsie Hughes, who keeps house for the Lord, for Lord Robert. And so today, stewardship of the life of the mind. One of our responsibilities as disciples of the Creator is to cultivate a rich, critical internal life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, says Jesus. And I'm happy to say that there is some good news for folk like us on this front. I may be preaching to the choir. I may be preaching to the choir if you are or were a Calvinist, if you are raised in a congregational church or a Presbyterian church or a Dutch Reformed church. That surly Frenchman John Calvin got many things wrong, but one thing he got right was to shepherd a literate flock who could read the Bible and unfold it for themselves. Geneva boasted one of the earliest public high schools in Europe, open to the scions of lawyers, doctors, earls, ladies, 
butlers, and housekeeps. In the 19th century, American Presbyterians recapitulated that intellectual priority by insisting that universal public education be made available to all Americans through the age of 16. Also, I love the memory that our dour ancestors, the Puritans, built an institution of higher learning on the banks of the Charles River in 1636, 16 scant years after they landed at Plymouth Rock. And so there they were gathered on a sliver of beach between dense virgin forests and the deep blue sea. And after they'd heaved up their humble hovels and hammered together their modest meeting houses and planted their maize and tobacco, they created this institution of higher learning for the training of Calvinist preachers so that they wouldn't have to send their pastors back to Europe to find out something about the Bible and Greek and Hebrew. They did it, they said, because they dreaded, they dreaded to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches. Yale and Princeton were founded later for the same purpose, to train Calvinist preachers. And so, I may be preaching to the choir if you are or were a Calvinist. I may be preaching to the choir if you are an American, and you probably are. Someone calculated that MIT graduates have formed 4,000 companies, created over a million jobs, and raised $240 billion in revenue. But Thomas Friedman points out that the miracle is not MIT, The American miracle is that every state in the Union has an MIT, sometimes more than one. Illinois has three in Evanston, Hyde Park, and Champaign. America has 4,000 colleges and universities. The rest of the world combined has about 8,000. California alone has 130. That's more than all but 14 nations. This is a proper national priority now more than ever because in Bombay and Beijing they are learning to recapitulate our intellectual advantage. And so I'm preaching to the choir if you are or were a Calvinist. I'm preaching to the choir if you are an American. I'm preaching to the choir if you are a Trevian. If you live in New Trier Township or in Evanston for that matter too because around here we insist that our children cultivate a rich internal life, that they practice stewardship of the life of the mind. We don't always do it for the right reason. Sometimes we do it because we want to be proud of them. Sometimes we do it because we want to bask in a reflected glory like the moon. But we insist that they become the finest thinkers they're capable of becoming. Not everybody needs to get 1500s on the SATs. Not everybody needs to take AP classes. And you can be proud for matriculating at a place like Calvin College or Oakton Community. We just have to be the finest thinkers we can be. Why are there so many Dartmouth graduates around here? I know more Dartmouth graduates than I know Northwestern graduates. And so when I ask somebody where they went to university and they tell me with apt pride, I went to Dartmouth... Often, the next thing they tell me, the very next thing is, I could never get in today. (laughs) In most cases, it's not false modesty. 
And I'm not casting aspersions on their intellectual ability. It's just that my contemporaries went to school in the 80s and things have gotten so much more competitive in the last 30 years. Our kids work so hard at cultivating the life of the mind. This might be the best and the worst thing about us. And so I'm preaching to the choir if you are or were a Calvinist, preaching to the choir if you're an American, preaching to the choir if you're a Trevian, but am I preaching to the choir if you are a Christian? And you probably are. Do we exercise the same diligence and discipline in our Christian education as we do in our secular educations? At the age of four, we matriculate at a joyful noise, and then every Sunday we're in town. We're here in Sunday school from crib room to confirmation, and then we graduate. We quit. Why is confirmation a graduation instead of a commencement? It should be a beginning, not an ending. Episcopalian priest Barbara Brown Taylor used to teach undergraduates at a small liberal arts college in Georgia, and she laments the anemic religious education her students receive before they enter her classes. When they turn in their first quiz in Christianity 101, they know instantly that something has gone horribly wrong. One student says, I think I just flunked my own religion. The only student who gets an A in Christianity 101 is an Orthodox Jew. Dr. Taylor says they never noticed that Matthew and Luke tell different stories about the birth of Jesus or that Mark and John have none. No one ever told them about Augustine or Constantine or Benedict or Luther. One student is shocked to learn that Charlemagne is not the major player in the Protestant Reformation. College students, in every other way, she says, they remain fifth graders in religion. Yes? Love God with your whole heart and soul and mind, says Jesus, not to mention Moses. Paul says, don't be conformed to the shape of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you might discern the will of God and know what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed, but transformed, says Paul. The word Paul uses is metamorphosis. Morph into something completely new, into a new mind, like a moth, like T-1000, the bad guy from that Terminator movie who slithers around like mercury and becomes a new form completely unlike what he originally was. Read the Bible. Shocking, I know. Join one of Joe's Bible studies. She'll teach you how to read it. Writes Paul to the church at Corinth, we destroy every argument and every obstacle against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. Will Williman was once dean of the chapel at Duke University and then Methodist bishop in Alabama, and he says that Christian education is the detoxification of culture. Yes? You see what he means? Some of the things the world tells us, not everything, some of the things are wrong and some of them are toxic. And Christian education will help you unlearn that stuff. 
world tries to teach us that the world we see with our eyes and touch with our hands is all the world there is. The world tries to teach us that the point of life is to be successful, to make money, and to have fun. The world tries to teach us that you are the captain of your own soul. The world tries to teach you that you owe nothing to anybody except to yourself. Christian education will get rid of all of that. Now that's not all there is to Christian discipleship, right? The stewardship of the life of the mind. If that's all we had, we would be thin Christians indeed. Oscar Wilde said that education is a very admirable thing, but it's useful to remember every now and then that nothing that is worth knowing can ever be taught. Yes? And then Paul proves it with his little comically simple catalog of Christian virtues in his letter to the Romans. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Reek to pay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. You don't need a PhD from MIT to know that stuff. Garrison Keeler says, Brilliance is like four-wheel drive. It allows a person to get stuck in even more remote places. <laughs> Someone sent me an email years ago. I still remember it. Someone sent me an email. Maybe they sent it to you too. Things I've learned. Things I've learned. I've learned that I love my teacher because she cries when we sing Silent Night age six. I've learned that my dog doesn't want to eat my broccoli either, <laughs> age seven. I've learned that just when I get my room the way I like it, my mom makes me clean it up, age 12. I've learned that if someone says something unkind about me, I must live my life so that no one will ever believe them, age 39. I've learned that the greater a person's sense of guilt the greater his need to blame others, age 46. I've learned that you can learn a lot about a man by the way he handles three things, a rainy day, lost luggage, and tangled Christmas tree lights, <laughs> age 52. I've learned that no matter your relationship with your parents, you miss them terribly when they're gone, age 53. I've learned that life sometimes gives you a second chance, age 62. I've learned that even when I have pains, I don't have to be one, age 82. I've learned that I still have a lot to learn, age 92. The human mind is the most complicated machine God ever came up with, so we steward the life of the mind, and we are not conformed to the shape of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might discern the will of God and know what is good and perfect and acceptable. We take every thought captive for Christ. And maybe by the time you reach the age of 92, you'll have learned that you still have much to learn about Jesus and about everything else in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.